Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I continue my cinematic journey through the decades, spanning through the 1920s all the way up to the 2010s. That's 10 decades, 10 episodes, and a whole lot of films. If you're new to this series of episodes that I've embarked on, essentially I pick five of my top favourite picks of film from each decade, and then ultimately by the end of this I will have created a top 10. So whichever pick ends up being the number one film in each decade will go into an overall top 10 which I shall reveal at the end of this series. Now obviously it's a big task to do especially when you love so many films of different eras. I think the earlier ones for me have been quite easy but as we're going through now it's getting a lot harder to pick my top five. But without further ado today's episode is based around the 1950s. Now the 1950s it's sort of that period where it's towards the end of the classical Hollywood era but it's still very much in the prime of the era that is really golden age Hollywood standard that we were introduced to in the 1930s specifically and definitely in the 40s but the 50s is sort of like they're used to the routine of it now so they're used to it so they're all in the throw of everything and these five picks uh some of them are quite obvious of it a lot of i think now i'm going to become much more personal in my picks because i think universally there's so many films that people agree are a classic of the 30s the 40s or even the 1920s but in these ones now we're getting even more subjective so i'm going to start off and kick off with my number five pick so this is number five in my top five of the 1950s and that is the alfred hitchcock film I could have picked many here, but I picked this one. Alfred Hitchcock, 1959, so right at the end of the 50s, North by Northwest. Now, some of you may be thinking, why didn't you pick something like Vertigo or Rear Window? You know, both of those are great films. But for me, I think North by Northwest encapsulates everything that's good about action films and espionage films, and then it's Hitchcock on top. It's not my overall favourite film of all time i do have hitchcock films which i prefer but this one i definitely think is like up there in terms of the ones that i enjoy the most the ones that i find the most entertaining uh, and north by northwest like i said it came out in 1959 directed by alfred hitchcock it's a james bond film but made by hitchcock that's essentially it and like i said it's got it's action drama thriller espionage bit of romance in there although to be quite frank the romance is a very small part of this really to be honest if you ask me the james bond espionage side of things is much more prevalent in this film than the romantic element just to give you a quick rundown of what the film is about like i said james bond espionage style kind of film with a hitchcock twist and lots of paranoia and suspense here and there of whether someone's going to get caught or not uh, essentially, it follows the story of a character called Roger Thornhill, who is played by the brilliant Cary Grant. In this, I feel like you could have... I could picture Jimmy Stewart in this, because Jimmy Stewart, so James Stewart, is very well known for collaborating with Hitchcock on multiple occasions. Cary Grant, I think, has been a... He's been in a couple of Hitchcocks as well, but I think, you know, out of those two men, Cary Grant does a really good job in this film, but equally, I could have easily seen James Stewart in the role. But he plays, so Cary Grant plays Roger Thornhill, who gets mistaken. So he's just he's just an advertising salesman, and he 
basically he's going about his daily life he's in new york city he's attending a business luncheon at the plaza hotel i want to say uh, and he goes along and he gets mistaken for a man called George Kaplan. Now, I'm not going to give away too much about who George Kaplan actually is, because you should watch the film to find out who that actually is. Uh, but essentially, Roger gets mistaken for this George Kaplan, and because these bad guys, led by the brilliant James Mason, <laughs> the brilliant James Mason in a pure bad guy role, but very suave and sophisticated, he leads this team, he's after this George Kaplan, because it's all spies, secrets, espionage and such, and you get this lovely cat and mouse thriller, as it were, in the middle, even though it's not really what you call a thriller by today's standards, but like it's very cat and mouse. And we've got Roger Thornhill, who gets taken away by couple of henchmen in a car and he gets brought to James Mason uh, for a polite chat <laughs> that's one of my sort of highlights of this is the the villainy is it's very James Bondy but it's got such a British sensibility to it because obviously it's it's the way James Mason's performance comes off it's a brilliant performance I would say and so we get this mistaken identity he's trying to convince them that he's not George Kaplan but they're not having any of it and it literally leads to a, like a cross-country chase from New York City all the way over to, I mean, like the middle of the USA. I would say it's a jam-packed thriller from start to finish, and we get a bit of a love interest in part, like I said, but that's not really the main focus. It's kind of like an extra thing, and the ending of the film, it, this doesn't spoil it at all, but it kind of seems a bit, a bit off, really, to be honest. Like, this two-hour-long Hitchcock espionage thriller, and then you get the romance bit right at the end where they sort of, they get together in the end. It's kind of like, it's all too perfect. And that's what sort of associates this with classic Hollywood because there's a perfect ending. It's probably the most normal of Hitchcock's films, I would say. Like the, less, the least suspenseful then of the bunch. But I would say that it's an interesting film to watch because it's, it's a fun film. And that's why I picked it. And it's number five for a reason because it's one of my sort of top fun picks. But yeah, I think James Mason is like, above Cary Grant, even though Cary Grant's like main bill. He's brilliant as the clueless Roger Thornhill and this thing that he sort of assumes like this random quest then that he's got to go on where he has to discover who and he makes it his job to discover who George Kaplan actually is and if you watch the film you'll realise it's a very big random chase all for nothing but you need to watch it. It's a good film in that respect. But yeah, I also think James Mason, like I said, he's really good at his suave, villainous look. And his name's Philip Van Damme. Like, Van Damme, it's such a good, solid villain name, or like antagonist name, then, shall we say. But it's a, you know, North by Northwest. The top moment, there's two really big scenes for this, really, that I can point out. There's the Mount Rushmore sequence where Roger Thornhill and his love interest are dangling off the edge of the the Rushmore Memorial and with all the president's heads there it's there was a bit of on location filming there as well as some like studio based soundstage stuff I'm gonna say as well but it's a brilliantly epic climactic moment in the film but the other moment the most iconic I would say of all the moments in North by Northwest is most definitely the crop duster scene where we see Roger Thornhill that's Kerry, oh, Kerry Grant. He's just stood there in the middle of nowhere at these, like, crossroads. He's just been dropped off by a bus. But then you just hear this plane, and you see it. You see the crop duster, and then it chases after him, and it creates that iconic image, that iconic still, which is, you know, so 
well known to this day even if you don't know the film you probably know of the crop duster sequence be it by name or just by the, the picture itself when you see an, a still image of that sequence so highly recommend it it's great fun but at the end of the day i know it's not everyone's favorite hitchcock film it's certainly not my favorite but from the 50s i kind of think it's a great bit of fun really that's not a james bond film that's the point if you want to go for james bond they don't come around till the 1960s whereas this is sort of an early form of like a good james bond film that's not one of the spoofy versions that we've had in the past this kind of leads me on we've got a bit of danger and epic sort of proportions and nationwide security espionage that kind of thing this leads me kind of nicely on to the next film in my list number four and that is Kiss Me Deadly, the 1955 Robert Aldridge film. And I think with this film, it again, it's an, a film noir which I have mentioned before, so I won't go into too much detail about this one, but it's a brilliant film for anyone who loves their classic film noir, and it's right at the height of its power, sort of towards the tail end to like this uh, era then of style, which most people don't call film noir until way after the event. But Kiss Me Deadly... It's based on the Mike Hammer series of books, so it stars a actor called Ralph Meeker as Mike Hammer this time. Mike Hammer has been portrayed by several different actors over the years, be it film, television, and other mediums. But Ralph Meeker plays him in this one. It also co-stars Christina Bailey, who is only is a character who's only wearing in the opening sequence. So it's not really a spoiler, but when you watch the film, in the opening of the film, you it's it's dark there's car, a car going by and we see this lady dressed in nothing but a trench coat in the middle of the road and she nearly gets run over and then this is where mike hammer sort of his journey begins then and his involvement into this big conspiracy with potential nuclear weapons potential something else dangerous who knows whatever's inside the box if i paraphrase the moment from seven there but there's a suitcase which has got some glowing weird light thing which is kind of the and we never see what's inside the case it echoes that sort of sight it's got a sci-fi twist to it and people always refer to kiss me deadly as a film that presents itself as a film noir crime thriller sci-fi film because of the ending of it and the atomic bomb notions which are sort of related to this object which everyone's after but we don't really know what it is until like the end and it's we think it's a bomb is it a bomb is it not we don't know but the film itself is basically classic detect private eye detective stuff so mike hammer is a private detective he is just your basic guy but he gets his private eye license revoked uh, so he, but he ends up going rogue and trying to uncover something in a case that seems to be bugging him quite well and people are after him and we meet one of the nicest mechanics like side characters you could ever meet in a film noir and unfortunately it's a bit of a spoiler alert but uh, so if you haven't watched kiss me deadly you know here it is but yeah unfortunately our uh, mechanic friend of mike hammer who would do anything for mikey as he calls him he, he ends up getting the worst of it and ends up getting killed but i would say it really shows you how ruthless film noir was it wasn't afraid to kill off a character that you would grow to love and think, ah, oh, I really want to see him make it to the end, and then he doesn't. But that's not all that's to the story. So Mike Hammer obviously does a load of investigating about the girl that he bumps into, who's dressed in only a trench coat at the beginning, so like I said, Christina Bailey. And also we have a brilliant performance as she's not a femme fatale, but she's got the, the sensualness of a femme fatale from like the classic noir era. 
and that is Velda Wickman, who is played by Maxine Cooper. Mike's, like, secretary, so to speak, or friend, really close friend. It, their relationship is very strange. She is his secretary, but at the same time, they're lovers as well. It's a very strange relationship. But I love it for its slick dialogue, uh, hard-boiledness, uh, just the way it flows, and it packs the punches. Like, one moment Mike's walking down the street, and the next he's getting beaten up by someone. <laughs> and tries to evade capture from this big crime lord or you know this conspiracy to try and get rid of him because he's getting too close to the truth because of the fact that he met this girl who had escaped some sort of like i mean we think it's an asylum but it's actually just a prison because she knows too much so there's a lot of oh what's going to happen kind of thing again it's a bit like north by northwest in a way because you've got this is it going to happen? Is it going to not? Like, what's going to happen? And it's got that rough edgeness to it. Even though this was like a prime picture, it wasn't a B picture, it was an A picture. A brilliant film. Gabrielle Lily Carver, uh, played by Gabby Rogers. Uh, she is the, uh, the girl who unfortunately ends up opening the box. There's a lot of... Uh, it's not a Hitchcock film, this film, but it's got a lot of blonde women in it. And it kind of brings that thing of the blonde bombshell of the 1950s because obviously you had Marilyn Monroe of the 50s I think with Kiss Me Deadly is very much it's using the blonde bombshell persona and imagery but at the same time we get this nice I don't know a, a change because it is gritty and yeah you've got the really glamorous side of things with the likes of Maxine Cooper with Mike but I think you've got a nice rough round the edges film that's not too shiny and sparkly but at the same time you know it's made in classic Hollywood because of the way it's shot. And again, the shadows, dark lighting. If you like your crime thrillers and your detective fiction, this is definitely one for you, especially if you like the hard-boiled style. If you like any books like that, you'll definitely like this one. I think ultimately for me, though, the top moment in Kiss Me Deadly is probably... It probably is the ending, even though there's been two endings where you... There's one ending where you don't see the characters get out of a situation alive... And the other is a bit more ambiguous and you don't really know what's going on. But like I said, if you haven't watched this, I'm, I am sorry. I'm going to sort of tell you about the ending a little bit more than I probably would do usually. But uh, it ends with a big explosion of this. It looks like a beach house. And it's kind of funny because this film really does show that it's been an avid influence on future cinema. Because the light in the suitcase which we assume is a bomb of some kind or something i mean people would say it was an atomic bomb that's what they used to say it was something that was the sci-fi element but i would say it definitely you can see it's influenced pulp fiction the likes of quentin tarantino and also the cabin that's on this beach it looks a bit like the cabin house thing that's in lost highway the david lynch film which to be honest because david lynch loves his film noir i'm not surprised by that uh, but yeah the ending where there's that big explosion it's a brilliant really effective piece of special effects i'm not sure which ending i prefer i think i enjoy the fact that they get out kind of i'm still up for debate i'm always up for the alternate ending for that one i'm a bit here and there with it but overall it's a brilliantly paced film great if you love detectives kiss me deadly brilliant film but moving on to number three in my picks I mentioned Blonde Bombshells earlier, and I mentioned Marilyn Monroe at one point as well. And I would say that this film is probably my favourite Marilyn Monroe film. I do have another one. I would say, so honourable mention goes out to Niagara, which is a 1953 film. I enjoy it just as much, but the thing with this film, it may be in black and white, 
but it's got a nice mixture of comedy, a little bit of like action, and it's just a fun piece of film to watch, really. It's a great thing to watch. Uh, so this is at number three in my picks. It's Some Like It Hot, the 1959 film directed by Billy Wilder. Now, like I said, it stars Marilyn Monroe as a character called Sugar Kane, or Sugar Kowalski, but she goes by Sugar Kane. She's very much the dumb blonde in this situation, but at the same time, I think it's probably one of my favourite performances of hers, even though it's from, like, later in her, quite late into her career, where, obviously, at the time, Marilyn Monroe was going through a lot of personal trouble relating to marriage and just generally the direction she wanted her career to go into. But this, I think, is a great piece of comedy, light-hearted relief, really, and a great overall classic to watch. So Marilyn Monroe, Sugar Cane, she is a member of a travelling all-girls band. She's a singer, and at the time, she was the big-screen icon, blonde bombshell that everybody loved at the time. And to be honest, I still admire Marilyn Monroe to this day, despite all the problems that she was put through, all the trouble she was given over the years during her career. She's left us with some great cinematic moments, including Some Like It Hot. And the thing with Some Like It Hot is it is a comedy. And that's the thing with Marilyn Monroe. She may not have liked being the dumb blonde. She may not have liked being the comedy value in a film. But with Some Like It Hot, it's just perfect. It's perfect for her to be a comedic role. And she does it so well. She plays off of the other two leads. So the two lead men alongside her. Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis. Uh, so Jack Lemon plays Jerry or Gerald, and Tony Curtis plays a character called Joe. Now Jerry and Joe are both part of a jazz band in New York City. This whole film set during 1929, so the Prohibition era is well in force. The film opens with Jerry and Joe playing at a club, and then they end up fleeing, getting into some trouble, bumping into a gang, and witnessing a murder. And because they've witnessed the murder, the gang want them dead, but they make a run for it. And now they're struggling musicians anyway, so they're trying to look for a job. They both seize an opportunity for their career and also to escape the gang. And they end up going on the run, but the only problem is they find this advertisement for this all-female band, and they need a bass player and a saxophone player. So double bass is Jack Lemon's sort of speciality, and then Tony Curtis's character, he plays the saxophone. But they're not women. So what do they do? They dress up as women and they adopt different personalities. So Jerry or Gerald becomes Daphne. Joe becomes Josephine. And ultimately, that's really where I can leave you with that film because it's a funny film. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And yeah, it's very fun to just watch because obviously you've got two men dressed as women on the run from the mob. It sounds crazy because it is crazy. They end up at this hotel near a beach. It's a beautiful looking beach. I mean, the film's in black and white, but I'm sure it looked really nice at the time when they filmed it. And obviously, along the way, even before they get to the hotel, we realise there's love interest between the guys and Sugar Cane. We have a lot of laughs with this one. And then eventually the mob turn up and all hell breaks loose. And that's all I'm going to leave you with, with some like it hot. I, you know, it's very comical. What more could you want? It's kind of got like a mixture of a buddy movie and romantic comedy kind of mixed in i think it would be described as a romantic comedy to this day but it's a brilliant film there's some great performances marilyn monroe does brilliant work so she does a bit of singing throughout the film as well 
brilliant from start to finish. And then the ending, the ending, I won't spoil it, but the ending's very funny. <laughs> when it's not a spoiler, but the men do get revealed to be actually men and not women. They are actually in disguise. But how it comes about, it's a brilliant last bit of dialogue from the characters before the credits just go the end. So I highly encourage you to watch that. Just a great piece of fun, really. So I can't recommend that enough. Like I said, Marilyn Monroe does so many good films in her career. I love Niagara, but Some Like It Hot is really, truly probably one of my favourite. Obviously, everyone knows uh, The Seven Year Itch with the famous Subway Breeze dress blowing up scene. But personally, I, I don't know. I think that film's all right because it's based on a play, I think, if I remember rightly. And it's got quite a theatrical sensibility to it. But I think with Some Like It Hot, it's a brilliant, just a fun romp, as it were, into... 1950s sitcom kind of but on a big screen scale so number three some like it hot next up on number two of my top picks is a musical because i love it and it's a proper musical this one and i've mentioned it a couple of times before because of the silent era and it is the wonderful singing in the rain directed or co-directed i should say by gene kelly and stanley donnan 1952 film a brilliant film that will always bring me some sort of sense of joy and warmth when I watch it. The musical is set in 1927, so it's during the silent era of Hollywood, and it's actually set in Hollywood itself. Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, is a silent movie star, but he's got to learn to adapt to the new sound era. Now, obviously, I mentioned the transition from silent to sound in the 1920s episode. This film, as I probably mentioned then as well, references an actual real-life occurrence. So the jazz singer from the 1920s, that is actually referenced in this film. It's the sort of main inspiration for the studio head at this fictional studio which the characters work at and work for, that they need to get themselves together to outdo Warner Brothers and MGM and all the big studios that are taking up the sound challenge. And they think it's going to be a phase, but then people say, mm, I don't think so. Uh, it's another fun film. I think the 50s were, although the 50s are full of sensibilities and opinions and attitudes that you wouldn't necessarily make in a film today, I think there are a lot of fun films in the 50s, and that's the sort of films that I enjoy in the 50s. Like, I like the crime thrillers then, and the edgy ones like film noir. Ultimately, though, the films are just really fun like for instance North by Northwest and Kiss Me Deadly in this list are probably the most serious and more dramatic pieces but then you get some like it hot and singing in the rain they're much more fun examples of 50s films so singing in the rain it's in color it's a square academy ratio but I would say that doesn't detract from the cinematic beauty of it and yes like I said Don Lockwood played by Gene Kelly he meets Kathy Selden who is a up-and-coming star during the course of the film, she becomes a big thing in sound pictures. It kind of, this journey kind of echoes what they did at the artist. The artist kind of replicated Singing in the Rain just without the actual sound. So the artist was actually a silent film about the silent movie era until the very last minute, obviously. So like I said, Kathy Selden, played by the amazing, brilliant, lovely Debbie Reynolds, who's no longer with us, obviously, but, you know, she was a brilliant actress. And I think, to be honest, for me, Debbie Reynolds... I will always remember her for Singing in the Rain, like as her most iconic role. People think of films and they think of one film for one person's career. Like they might have had really good credits everywhere else, but there's always one film for some people. For me, Debbie Reynolds' role as Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain was great. So she is the love interest for Don Lockwood, even though Don is contractually, as a celebrity in Hollywood, uh, obliged to look like he's in a relationship 
with Lena Lamont, who is essentially, uh, she's got a strong New York City accent. Uh, She's played by the amazing Jean Hagen. She's got such a whiny, annoying voice, but because it's meant to be like that, it's such a brilliant performance. She doesn't sound like that either. The actress is probably a little bit more... Obviously, she was American, but she was a little bit more well-spoken with an American twang anyway, but she had a really strong New York accent. And <laughs> and it's main, the source of most of the comedy because we go to the sound era, it's all oh, we'll make it into this silent picture, which was going to come out. We'll make it into a musical, The Seeing Cavalier. And we get Lena Lamont trying to sing. Doesn't end well. But then lots of films were dubbed, as well as obviously the original vocal artist, but a lot of films back in the classic Hollywood days, or at least in the 50s and 60s, were dubbed with different people singing voices if they didn't, the studio thought that the singing wasn't quite up to scratch then, shall we say. It's a very interesting bit of power struggle between, obviously, Debbie Reynolds' character, who's very much a very good raw talent, and she's the voice of Lena at some point in the film. So you've got Don Lockwood in love with Kathy Selden, and they need to be together you know they're going to be together it's classic hollywood they're destined for it they have a beautiful one of my highlights from singing in the rain is definitely the ballet moment where i think gene kelly comes along and he bumps into debbie reynolds in the middle of like a sound stage an empty sound stage but there's she's got it's kind of beautiful there's an uh wind machine he turns on she climbs up a ladder and there's like a float she's got this pink flowy scarf it's a really beautiful and obviously gene kelly is the master of classic dance like a beautiful performer in his own right such a great talent there's another brilliant sequence with cosmo brown character played by donald o'connor so donald o'connor and gene kelly did a lot of dancing together and singing in the rain they have a lovely moment where they're learning how to speak properly and really train their diction ready for sound pictures uh, which is what they always used to do after sound came in they would send actors in for lessons for either dancing speaking singing etc and this is depicted in a very comical musical sequence but i would say the ultimate song for me is the title song singing in the rain and it's my favorite moment in the movie because it's just so iconic the moment where he he swings up onto the lamppost gene kelly uh, with his umbrella and hat and suit and everything like that you know swings on there declares that he's singing in the rain and it's a real fun thing as well and i love also that the rumors that go around that the rain was actually milk so that he didn't get like so it wasn't too bad if he got like he didn't get pneumonia or anything but no genuinely that was so much behind the scenes for that there was obviously lots of lots of water used for the rain because he needed to be dancing in it and i think he did it quite a lot of times to get that right but obviously because he's a perfectionist I think the only sequence that stands up to me is one of my favourite moments in Singing in the Rain, other than that song itself, uh, where he's just said goodbye to Kathy, it starts raining and he has a ball with it. It's probably the most simple but yet effective sequence. The only bit that stands up to me is the Broadway melody sequence, which is a big, elaborate musical number set in the, on a big 50 soundstage, very classic. There's a beautiful moment in it. It's like a dream sequence of what a big musical sequence in this silent film will be called the Broadway Melody, where the character has a dream. The story of the singing Cavalier, or Julie Cavalier, is very, very weird. <laughs> it's very strange. If it was actually made, I would love to have seen how it would have actually looked as a proper period film. But uh, but yeah, he has a lovely moment, Gene Kelly, with regular collaborator Sid Charisse. It's so bright and shocking in the colours that it really just powers off the screen. I think Singing in the Rain, whilst it's a musical and a comment on 1920s Hollywood, I think it's just a brilliant example 
of how you can have fun with song, dance, acting and everything and put some comedy in there and just not be too heavy with it, but have fun. So I highly recommend Singing in the Rain again, and that's why it's my number two pick. And at number one on my picks for the 1950s is another Billy Wilder classic, and that is for 1950 Sunset Boulevard. This one, as a lover of film noir, I love it because it is quintessential film noir with a voiceover like we see in Double Indemnity run throughout the entire film or at least the beginning of the film and then sort of at the tail end and it's a very interesting film because it plays with continuity now obviously double indemnity in 1944 it begins at what would be sort of just before the very end of the film so it's before the film ends and it's something that's part of the end of the events after the events that we're seeing so we get a, the whole film is like an extensive flashback to the events that have led up to this moment that we see at the beginning of the film and that's just the case in Sunset Boulevard, we get to see our main character, played by William Holden, as a character called Joe Gillis. We open up with police cars zooming by, zooming by up Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and we see a sign for Sunset Boulevard, that's the name of the film, and we find William Holden just floating face down in a swimming pool. And it's his voice we're hearing, and he's like, he's telling the story from beyond the grave. This isn't really the first time, I mean, obviously, this is clearly an influence on several films that come out later on, especially in the late 20th century, early 21st century, where films like to begin at the end and end with what you started with at the beginning and play around with this continuity and the idea that your narrator might not actually be, he'll be reliable, but or she'll be reliable, but because they're dead and that they're telling you a story from beyond the grave. Joe Gillis goes, how does this happen to a guy like me? Well, I'll tell you how it happened, and then it goes back in time. Now, this film, again, another 1950s film, like Singing in the Rain, that has connections to the silent era. Now, it's set during the actual, like, the era, so late 1940s, early 1950s, for when it was filmed and then released. But this film refers to, it's actually set in the present day for the time, but it relates to the silent era and its main character one of its main characters played by the amazing Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond the most out there over the top character that you could possibly meet in one of these old style classic Hollywood films and she is a former silent movie star and there's a brilliant quote which she uses where she goes uh, someone goes oh aren't you Norma Desmond you used to be big and she goes I am big the pictures just got small and that's kind of the thing that we're always battling with Sunset Boulevard because of the fact that we get to see this silent movie star trying to come back into her prime. And Joe Gillis works, uh, I think it's Paramount Studios he works for, and he is a staff writer. He writes in the script writing room in Hollywood, and uh, but none of his scripts ever get taken up. We see him begging to get a film script that he's written made about, I think it's about a baseball uh, star or something like that it's not very good but it needs work but he never gets any of his offers accepted and then like i think he, his car's up for repossession so he ends up hiding and running away and then he ends up randomly waltzing into norma desmond's massive mansion and it's kind of you know the thing with gene uh, i, re I re referenced gene kelly in xanadu 
he lives his character in Xanadu is oh this house used to belong to a big old silent movie star and it seems to be a precedent that silent movie stars had massive houses massive houses like mansions which you know they could afford them but they didn't need all the space but they had them anyway and they were probably mostly for entertaining and such but it's quite a sad tale for Gloria Swanson's uh, Norma Desmond as she's basically been left on the side She's always waiting for a phone call to ask her to come back and make a new film and a proper film because she's not really into sound pictures. Like she even at one point there's a brilliant scene where she sits in like her own little mini cinema in a little projection room and she shows Joe one of her old silent movies. She goes, that's acting. No, no, no talking. We didn't talk in my day. That's acting. And there's a brilliant shot really well lit she stands up in this dark room and obviously the only light that's in the room is coming from the screen and she stands up and her hand is lifted into the light of the beam of the projector and it just it's a brilliant shot as well as obviously the shot of joe dead in the water which was a brilliantly like interesting image to see from the beginning before we get to learn how he got killed we then go through the motions that joe gillis is a scriptwriter and he helps norma desmond bring a script to life we along the way we meet there's an interesting character as well who is eric von stroheim who plays the character max von mailing who is the butler to norma desmond but a little spoiler of that for you guys she was actually married to him so he was her first husband and he was a director who discovered norma back in the classic era of silent movies but ever since has remained sort of faithful to her over the years and sort of been her servant as it were because he's he wanted her back and it's kind of a tragic lost love story in that respect it's a very tragic tale on her part and she enslaves joe she buys him things she's got all this money she doesn't know what to do with it she treats him well but she kind of grooms him for what she wants which is to get back in the spotlight and so this film is about the movies about hollywood norma is a silent movie star She's so desperate to get back in the game. And at one point, there's one of my highlights from this film is where she goes back to the studio. There's an old man who's like doing the rigging up on the ceiling in one of the sound stages. And he goes, it's Norma Desmond. And he, uh, and he comes up to her. He's like, do you remember me? <laughs> and like, she probably doesn't. She says she does, but she probably doesn't. And it's a lovely, sweet, tender moment of some people who remembered each other from a time long gone by for at least most of the people on the set. But everybody did, a load of people did start going, oh, is that Norma Desmond? They crowd around her and she feels like she's back at home. And we actually get a lovely, a couple of cameos actually from Cecil B. DeMille uh, himself, the legendary Hollywood director who in the story apparently worked with Norma Desmond when she was younger and when she first started working in the business. And there's a lovely, you know, we also get so many cameos in this film. So Cecil B. DeMille is one of them, big director in that set where we actually see him filming a new brand new project and Norma sort of gate crashes it but in the mansion of Norma Desmond you got people like Hedda Hopper who is very well known for being a gossip columnist I could I suppose you could call her uh, there's a version of her featured in the 2015 Brian Cranston starring film Trombo about blacklisted screenwriters in Hollywood in the 1950s played by Helen Mirren uh, but Hedda Hopper herself was actually featured in this in a moment where she she's a reporter and she's there to report about Norma Desmond it's towards the end of the film but you also get silent movie stars the likes of Buster Keaton H.B. Warner Anna Q. Nilsson all three of those they're all bridge players in a scene where Norma Desmond's playing bridge it's kind of strange it's one of the earliest examples along with Singing in the Rain to be a Hollywood production about Hollywood and it's a very fun interesting way to look at it but also quite you know it's got the noir taste to it it's got that sense of 
dark underworld. You've got sunny Los Angeles, sunny Hollywood, and then you've got this dark underbelly of a star that's been forgotten and she wants to be remembered, and then things get out of hand, and I'll encourage you to watch the film to just sort of see how everything progresses. But to sort of close on this, my favourite quote, the quote that everybody knows, the key quote from this film that I love, and it's my favourite scene is, so Joe Gillis is dead, and then there's reporters and everyone everywhere, and there's TV news cameras, and Norma Desmond is sort of in a bit of a deluded state where she thinks, I don't want to come out, like, she thinks she's on a film set, she thinks she's in her trailer, she's ready to come out and do her scenes, and her butler was like, just go along with it, to the news team, and then she comes down this grand staircase in this beautifully shot house, beautifully designed house, and then she says the immortal words, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, and that bit just gives me chills every time I see it. It's a brilliant part of the film, and I think that ultimately it sums everything up. She's obsessed with her image as it used to be. She's ready for her close-up. The film is a great comment on both the forgotten silent movie era and how the modern era has driven silent movie stars to madness almost because they were well-loved, well-respected. And it's a great social comment on the isolation that has gone on in this scenario. And I think with this one, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, is the ultimate epitome of this film. It sums it up completely. It's a movie about the movies and just a tragedy, really. It's a Hollywood tragedy. That's what I would call Sunset Boulevard, a Hollywood tragedy. And it's shot with such care and delicacy. And with Billy Wilder at the helm for directing it, who's already got a taste for film noir already with the likes of Double Indemnity anyway, and the stuff that was to come after Sunset Boulevard, the likes of working with Marilyn Monroe. It's just a brilliant combination. And I think the images in that are so well shot. I think you can pause it on any frame and it would be a great still image. It would be a great picture to hang up in your wall. It's so well crafted then. And it's quite a simple story overall. Effective. Silent movie star goes mad. Aspiring screenwriter gets killed. And ultimately it's all show business. That's what it's all about. And with that in mind, I'm going to end the podcast on that note. So just to quick recap on this. My top five films for the 1950s were North by Northwest, Kiss Me Deadly, Some Like It Hot, Singing in the Rain, and Sunset Boulevard. I hope you've enjoyed my picks for this episode today, guys. If there's any I've missed out or you think I should have included, let us know on our Instagram and Twitter feeds. So at Take97Podcast for Twitter and at Take underscore 97 podcast for Instagram. If there's anything you think should have been in here, it probably was in contention, but there's just so many to go through and I had to pick five. So these are my top five for now, with Sunset Boulevard being my number one film. I can't wait to share with you the next episode, which will be focusing entirely on the 1960s. I look forward to see you on the next episode, guys, and thank you very much for listening. And as always, that's a wrap on Take 97, the 1950s edition of the podcast, and I shall see you on the next episode. Thank you very much, guys. See you later.